0: Welcome to the Great Bass Tennis Podcast. This is episode 135, An Unfamiliar Voice. Who am I? My name is Yvonne. I help Steve manage the nonprofit, Great Bass Tennis Education. Steve is unfortunately unable to attend the podcast this week, so I'll be taking over. Today, we will revisit some old podcasts, mainly the podcasts on the eight pillars of the Great Bass. Jim Verdick, Welby Van Horn, Bill Jacobson, Dr. Jim Lair, Peter Burwash, Mr. Harry Hotman, Dennis Vandermeer, and Vic Braden, in that order. So let's travel back in time and listen to Steve and Andy Fitzell talk about Jim Verdick on podcast episode number five. One of the pillars that we have
1: with tennis intelligence applied, but we could also say just the great base, Jim Verdict, the late Jim Verdict. I've had the pleasure over the last few days, really a week or so, to go through a lot of his information from your library, a 10-hour course.
2: Yeah, um, we have a couple of those. We have a
1: couple of those. So been through those. And then uh, also I read his book which was part of the ptr manual on on team coaching yeah, volume four team team building team coaching yes yeah. so we've got quite a few notes here on coach verdict and amazing stuff and i'm really looking forward to this so jim verdict first of all is truly amazing story uh, he's been honored by having the courts at redlands university named after him the ptr's coach of the year award is named after him and the Southern California Tennis Association has an annual team cup named after him. Pretty good stuff. But yeah, great, great career as a coach. So many different things about him. But I know you've got you've spent some time with him personally. I'm just learning about him through your library, basically, and, and through workshops and books. But I know you've got a couple of stories that you wanted to share. Yeah, I'll start with this. I,
2: I met Jim Verdick through Dennis Vandermeer. Hmm. Dennis Vandermeer, such as tennis teaching genius. So Dennis was the one, uh, excuse me, uh, Jim was asked. Jim was asked, uh, so how much of your tennis coaching has been influenced by Dennis Vandermeer? And t- Jim, for a very gracious, classy guy, he goes, what do you mean? <laughs> and he uh, yeah, had the person asked the question a second time. He said, no, 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 you have it backwards. I would, And he said, "I think I would say that 90% of Dennis's coaching is based on what I do. So the journalist, you know, a couple of weeks went by and the journalist ran into Dennis and said, Jim Verdick said that your coaching is based 90% on his coaching. Yeah. And Dennis thought about it for a moment and said, yeah, that's about right. And, and, and Dennis was not patronizing. Dennis loved, like everybody did, Dennis loved Jim Verdick. But that was from a coaching standpoint. From a teaching standpoint, they were both mentored by, The late Tom Stowe, who taught Don Budge. I mean, that's where they get their foundation of basics. Yeah. I'll tell you another one, another story. This is my favorite Jim verdict story. So I'll give you the setting where it um, it was in the 80s. So he came to Tyler Junior College just twice during the 10 years I was in Tyler, between 81 and 91. So the first time he comes... Students, I know I'm young, so it goes way, way back. This is like forty years ago. I don't want to mention any names. Kirk Wittari. We have to thank Kirk for asking this dumb question. And it it just turned out great. It was amazing. So it was you know, midway through the ten hour workshop and Kirk raises his hand and says, Coach and everybody called Jim Vert coach except mm-hmm. for his wife. Even his I understand, even his kids called him coach. So Kirkwitari said, coach, did you ever apply for a big job? Because he had been <laughs> at Redlands University and he ended up being there for 37 years, won 15 national championships. And during the course of time he was there, they were both NAIA and NCA. So- Division? Uh, division three. Division NAIA, three, right? Yep. NAIA, NAIA, <laughs> did I say that right? NAIA in yeah. division three. <laughs> so they switched. So being the class gentleman he was, he first answered the question and he said, yes, I did one time. And then he proceeded, he goes, I applied to be the tennis coach at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Um, I thought I had a good chance. And then it was amazing. He goes, you know, I went to Stanford, played three sports, played football. He was 178 pound center on the Rose ball championship team. They're undefeated in 1940. So, and he goes, well, then I went back to Stanford and I got my master's degree And when I got my master's degree, I coached. um, I I helped with the football team and the tennis team. And you know, I thought it helped too when I applied to Stanford that I was a Marine. Mm -hmm. I was a major in the Marines, and also I won the national fitness championship twice. It just keeps (laughs) going on and on. And then he Mm -hmm. says, "And you know, by the time I applied, I had already won some national championships at Redlands." And he kind of paused, and he goes, "And my my two sons—they became really good players." my two daughters. They played college tennis, but they just didn't put the hours in. My sons did. Get, I have all this on video. Too. Yeah. So, um, so I think I had a good chance. He goes, you know, I was honored. I was in the final three, got an interview, and didn't get hired. And he goes, they hired Dick Gould, great man, and look at the job he's done. Mm-hmm. And he said that's the only time he applied to, uh, to, to, for another job. So on that story, several years later, I was at the NCAs, and by that time, Dick Gould had retired, but he was there. I was there to meet with Dave Fish and Dave Benjamin on tennis camps. So I was in this meeting with uh, Dick Gould, and I said, I need to ask you, do you know who else applied for the job when you were applying at Stanford? Mm-hmm. He said, no. I said, Jim Vertick But <laughs> He said he had no idea. Now, Vertick lives um, in Southern Cal where he grew up, and obviously Stanford's in Northern Cal, mm-hmm. but Dick Gould said I had an edge because I met the athletic director. I, w- I waited in the parking lot where he parked his car and asked permission to walk with the Stanford AD from his from the parking lot to his office. Yeah. He said he did it for like a dozen mornings, yeah. and he said that uh, you know he really wanted the job, but it's cheating. But but uh, <laughs> but no, Dick Gould obviously seventeen national championships. But that's, that's a good way to introduce uh, Jim Verdick is to tell that story.
1: Yeah. no Amazing record. And um, just the fact that he was a Marine, a football player,
2: um, you know, Rose Bowl. When he went to Redlands, he actually was a football coach and the tennis coach. And that was very common years and years ago. I mean, it was so unfair for women years ago, but the uh, the minor sports, many times the the coaches of the major teams. It's like, yeah, you're the football coach, but you got you to gotta coach tennis in the spring. Now, Jim, um, he didn't play tennis at Stanford. When he was at Stanford, Ted Schroeder, I taught tennis, Ted Schroeder's son, Rick, um, he won Wimbledon, Ted Schroeder. But when he was at Stanford, um, they had two players in the singles final and four players in the doubles final. So he, he didn't play at Stanford. And so he was not... You know, that, you know, he played three sports, but so, you know, tennis, you know, I mean, obviously he played f- football in the Rose Bowl, but, uh, so he was a tennis player. Yeah, no, I understand that he won the, he played on the intramural team. Yeah. And was the champion. Yeah. So, you know, he he found time for that. Yeah. Um, with, uh, but you know, he, he always tells people that, no, I was never a great player. And, and he, and he actually makes a point. I do think it's a bonus to be a great player when it comes down to being a coach, but, uh, he goes, you know, I don't think I ever lost to a coach who was a great player. Yeah. He'd lose too many times.
1: Yeah. No, that was great. I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I've got this down where part of his coaching philosophy, he broke things down in, you know, into basics, but he broke things down into craft and then competition and conditioning. Yeah. The, you know, the, I'm not
2: sure the order, but. Well, he's those a genius. He, he put all three together. Yeah, craft competition and conditioning, but you know, the other C for me was uh, Coach Verick character. Mm. But he, you know, he put all three together. Um, the uh, When it comes down to craft, um, I would, another time I was at the NCAs, and I was in a conversation with Stan Smith and Peter Smith, it was very brief. Mm. And then um, Peter, he was work, warming his team up, just courtside. Uh, Stan just talking to a couple of us, and he said George Tolley, is college coach, because he he's the best college coach ever. And I like to ask questions that kind of stop people in their tracks. Mm-hmm. And I said, Stan, uh, what about Jim Verdick? I said he was a great college coach. And he looked at me; you could just tell he was shocked. He goes, Jim Verdick. because I knew that when he was a kid, he took lessons mm-hmm. from Jim Verdick. And, and then he told me the story, told a few of us the story. But he was like, it was kind of those things like, where did that name come from? And his father, Stan Smith's father, he goes, Yeah, when I, mean, I didn't have a tournament on Saturday, he put me on a bus. I'd go from Pasadena, California um, to the Redlands campus. And, I, and then I asked him about the lessons. And he just said, You know, he just remembers, you know, he was listening. He said, At that time, um, his two children, his two sons, I should say, Doug and Randy, he said one, and I can't remember which one it was, but uh, he goes, yeah, one of his sons could beat me 6-0, 6-0. So I was listening, <laughs> And my father said, this is where you got to go. And, um, but, you know, he just said all the right things. It was just fundamentals and detailed and short-count swings and on balance. And,
0: yeah. You know. Welcome back. Once again, that was episode five of the podcast. So to watch or listen to the whole podcast, you can go onto YouTube or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. The next pillar of the Great Bass we will be revisiting is Welby Van Horn. Let's travel back again and listen to Steve and Andy talk about Welby on episode number 15. But for this, Welby Van Horn, Sydney Welby
2: Van Horn, 1920-2014. Yeah. We've done some work. Um, I called up uh, Manny Diaz, who grew up in San Juan, Puerto Rico, played as a junior under Welby. and he's been at the university of georgia he played there he's been the head coach nca championship coach yeah talked to manny i talked to philip eisenberg uh philip and betsy they um owned uh, the uh welby van horn tennis camp but then i talked to ed weiss uh we'll go through uh more about them and what they had to say ed wrote uh the book um the true master, the, tell me, oh, I've got it written down. <laughs> he is a true master. Um, legends of the true master, the method of the true master. Yeah. I apologize not to have that just by memory. But uh, why don't you tell us, Tell. so we've done a lot of homework. We've got 12, I have 12 p- type pages here. Yeah. Um, the collector's item, tell the uh, listeners about the record. I was oh, telling I was telling too. Manny about it. He was excited to get a copy.
1: Yeah, I'll get him a copy, but... Really, the book as well is becoming a collector's item. It's not easy to find. I was I picked one up years ago, you know, for a pretty regular price, but now it's, it's hard to find. Um, so Welby's book, but then also, yeah, just recently, not too long ago, some months ago, I was scouring the internet and found an old record of Welby's. So was, I didn't know uh, that existed. Yeah, tennis you know, Tennis Fundamentals with Welby Van Horn and it's from nineteen seventy, so fifty years ago, if my math is correct. But uh yeah, so we listened to that over the last few days. So I actually had we didn't have a record player. So I went on to uh a famous online store, Amazon, and was able to pick up a little record player that, that will transfer it over to MP three as well. So we've got it we got it digitized. Um it was fun to listen to, you know, to hear Welby's voice and he was being interviewed and then the first side he goes through the the backhand, the forehand and the serve. Just fundamentals. It was
0: great. Yeah, the
2: Welby Van Horn formula. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. What was that formula? The formula. Go through it. It's balance, it's grip, it's stroke, it's strategy. Yeah. Uh, what I did at the top of, I, I have at the top of my notes is Welby's playing background. I don't think anyone, mm-hmm. arguably in the history of tennis, has been as great a player and then turned around and had, had such a great career as a teacher. Yeah. But he, he was uh, 1920, born in Los Angeles, from Southern California. Same age group as Jack Kramer. Mm-hmm. He's a year younger, 11 months. I played doubles with Kramer uh, when they were still juniors. You know, they were playing among the best in men's men's doubles. Um, They got the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. uh, Lost the team that won it. In 1939, Welby uh, was in the U.S. Open final. 19 years old. And that record was broken in 1990. Youngest U.S. Open finalist. Yeah. Um, Pete Sampras won the tournament in 1990. And he was coached during the tournament by Joe Brandy. Right. Who was one of Welby's students. Yeah, it's Uh, cool. The connection. But 1939, so you have to be thinking World War II. um, Welby had a chronic asthmatic condition. And during World War II, he was stationed in a military factory opposed to going to uh, combat. Um, And that actually affected his amateur status Hmm. Um, because he taught tennis. He was considered a professional. Yeah. Listers need to really think about, or the, especially the young listers. Um, so the world stopped. There was no, just very similar to the pandemic this year where there was no Wimbledon. But right. uh, for several years, uh, four years, the world shut down and um, people weren't playing tennis. But Welby, his father died he was 13, didn't really have any money. He, um, as a tennis player, I mean, he was a great athlete. Um he was asked to, to try out for the, or play with the Boston Red Sox organization as a pitcher, but tennis was his thing. And um, so the barnstorming days, like Kramer, for example, you know, he had his hundred match series with Riggs and a hundred mm-hmm. match series with Gonzalez. But Welby was on the outside because it, you know he, for, from the ages of uh, nineteen to thirty-one, started teaching tennis full time at thirty-one. He was yeah. really in the top eight in the world, right? And but that didn't put him in those barnstorming, you know, yeah. where they just two players would just travel with, you know, the, the, the story where they take the tennis court and they, un- yeah, they take the bus and um, and the tractor trailer and they unroll the the mat, the tennis court, and they put it on an ice hockey rink, yeah, they exactly. put it on a gymnasium. Yep. Um, but Welby did in 1945, there's a, a tournament for professionals, so the. Tennis didn't become a pro support until 1968. So once you committed to playing professional, which he did, mm-hmm. at a very early age, you, know, you were not you were not allowed to play the Grand Slams. Yeah, that's where tennis history is. Um, you know, cool. very very complex. Yeah. It's, now now it's, now it's just based on you know, who who's won the most Grand Slams. Yeah. Years ago, for uh, I mean, there was many years where the, the top players, for example, they didn't go to Australia. Um, I was talking to. Um, Philip Eisenberg, Nandan Ball, was number one in the juniors in um, India. Mm. And this was at Welby's camp where I worked in in, uh, Connecticut, the Choate School. Welby's 59. They played one set and Welby won. But there was some intimidation because in the warm-up, I remember Nandan, he missed one ball. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, in front of about 200-plus people, Mm. Welby uh, Welby gave non-Don a a lecture on missing a ball in a (laughs) warm-up. So, yeah, I mean, we, in the audience, was watching and listening the whole thing. Um, That's great. No instruction, though. He was really known as a stylist. He was a beautiful player. He played against all the greats. Mm. And um, he used to say that he thought Don Budge was the best. Um, But even after the war, um, and when Kramer, and you know Vic Brayman, uh, the late Vic Brayden, you knew him so well, is that yeah. he, you know, he was so close with Kramer. Yeah. Kramer was the best at that time. And he dominated uh, Riggs, he dominated Gonzalez. And, but Welby played him in the 1948 World Professional Championships and lost him in five sets. Yeah, um, But no, no, he's was, he was an excellent tennis player. Solid player. Yeah, yeah I mean, I had, in my notes, so we'll go through more and more stories about you know, how good a tennis player he was. I think, you know, really... Too
1: there's not many players, ex-top players like he was, that, that go out and get into coaching, teaching, and work with beginners. Yeah. No, it's pure. I know, um, I
2: know we're going to talk about that, but, but yeah, that's with, what um, he did. And that almost doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. People don't even want to teach beginners. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, you know, for people who understand American baseball, we talk about we need more first-base coaches. Right. Some people are third base coaches. The person is right about to score, and that's the person who's out at the local tournaments handing out their business cards. But at the very elite level, I like say a lot of the commentators on TV—they're always around the pros. Yeah, they—they they end up coaching people who've already scored.
1: Yeah,
2: you know. You say, well, um, you know, you said one of the last podcasts is, yeah, I started coaching the player, or he started coaching the player when they were, you know, six in the world and took them to the top five. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> The um, one thing with a question that Welby he used to always ask people, how do you develop a championship mind? Mm. You know, just having a conversation, he would bring that up and he was very interested in what people would have to say. But coming back to his level of play, Welby was always seeking a challenge I and mean, he would play left-handed. He actually played where he took a racket, had the strong, the racket strong, used the old Dunlop's max, max ply four mains, four cross. Things. I saw someone hitting on the other day on the internet.
1: I saw somebody hitting with a racket that was
2: that way, four and four. Yeah, it's a great teaching aid. Um, You know, one thing, speaking of teaching aids, I would recommend the tennis teachers take a racket out on the court, no strings, and toss balls, feed balls. Mm -hmm. And then you have the student go through and and there's no, you know, fly away ball or how they do. Yeah. So you actually take a racket with no strings, you toss the ball to the kid and the adult, and, you know, it's just like, okay, I'm going to toss you a volley. I'm going to toss you toss you a forehand. Yeah. And then they're just focused on, you know, grip, swing, body. They're not focused on, and we always tease, you know, they're looking how they do. The ball's round, the ball's yellow. Yeah. But I know one thing we talk about along those lines is getting out of the context of the court.
1: I know we've got that somewhere here in our notes. But, yeah. you know, just, okay, you turn around and hit ground
2: strokes against the fence or serves against the fence. And so you don't yeah, worry about no, the outcome. For sure. when he was. Teaching to serve, you take people right up to the net. But Welby would teach at the T-line. That's in the notes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's like a lump of clay. He's an artist. He's a sculptor. And he's maneuvering the, the students, you know, the posture, the, their every little movement, every little detail. Yeah. Uh, Vic Brain stayed on the same side of the net as you know. He you know, used to say the net was a barrier. Just about every tennis teacher is going to start on the other side of the net. And it's a barrier. But you're yeah. right there on the si- same side of the net with them. Easier to communicate. Yeah, and then also, too, is that you're going to go over and, you know, Vic used to say that, you know, you, know, you need to go over and, you know, kinesthetic learning is to yeah. oh, close your eyes and take their, take their hand and push it down. Right. But he would feed right up next to the net, he, you know, the way Braden fed. Yep. Um, making sure the ball was really low. But Welby, just in getting someone to drop hit a ball, that's an art. And then, mm-hmm. and then feeding the ball. You know, don't toss the ball to someone. Okay. You know, their contact points right, right here, just yeah. drop the ball this way yeah. and don't drop it from a high position because then it's going to bounce from high position. Yeah. Yeah. But Welby used to play kids um, and he would play with no strings and he would hit on <laughs> yeah. the throat that's of his, uh, I mean, that's how good he was.
0: And yeah. you had to make the adjustments with his feet. Welcome back again. That was a clip from episode number 15. And we go on. The next pillar of the Great Base will be Bill Jacobson, episode number 20. Let's listen in on Steve and Andy once again. I think of Bill Jacobson. Genius comes to my mind, intellectual, but numbers. Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: The last podcast, Chris Everett's birthday is December 20th, not December 21st. I was right. So that was the first time. <laughs> Actually, I'm just teasing. That was the second time. Yeah. So score and stats. I'm up 2 0. Don't be managed by score. Be managed by stats. Yep. I think with uh, the great base, we have eight pillars. We've talked about Jim Verdick. We've talked about Welby Van Horn. Now yeah. Bill Jacobson. Yeah. The great base tennis curriculum, tennis pathway. It's not Steve Smith, Andy Fitzsauce stuff. What Bill brought to the Great Base uh, is what he brought to tennis, a pioneer, um, is statistics. Yeah. He designed, uh, we have a copy, or one of the old uh, copy, I guess the instrument's not a copy. (laughs) Yeah. It's the real thing. Yeah, really, if you're you're, you're
1: listening to this, you could check out on YouTube. We have, um, obviously, a video, but we have the CT120, the CompuTennis120, Right here on our
2: table. Yeah, we'll get into that. It's an uh, it's amazing tool, with, and it, it certainly um, has made it made an impact on the game, an impact on all of sports. Uh, Dennis, uh, Dennis Vandermeer of South Africa, and he's one of the other pillars. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of one of the eight, Dennis Vandermeer. Uh, so, it's the Great Bases International. We have. Two South Africans, Harry Hobbin, Australian, Peter Burrows, a Canadian, yeah, and then several Americans. With that being said, even though there's only eight pillars in our course, tennis intelligence applies. We have over a hundred coaches. But Bill, highly educated, um, like I think of Jim Verick being so humble. There's things that I learned about Bill Jacobson doing some homework. Uh, he completed two four-year degrees at the University of Cape Town in two years. Beautiful place. I was there a couple of years ago. One of our students, Raven Klassen, that's where he's practicing when he's home. Two four-year degrees in two years. Yeah, uh, but he studied business and law. Then he went to Stanford on an academic scholarship, got an MBA. He re- returned home for just a few years, and he started making his home in Northern Cal in the '60s. Basically, he was an intellectual working in a think tank. He worked as a systems engineer for IBM, was co-founder of a high-tech company called Geometrics. He wrote a book. That's not your typical book of a tennis of a of a tennis person. He uh, tennis contributor, tennis educator. Rediscovery of Africa, 1300 and 1900, geophysical and historical maps. <laughs> With his wife, Yvonne. He uh, they have funds where they collaborate and are working. There's a a special program between uh, the University of Cape Town and Stanford. Hmm. So certainly his education, but he matched that with yeah. being a tennis player. Yeah, uh, played singles and doubles at Wimbledon, 1959, when he played. People played three events. It's interesting; they played three events so they could hang in the term as long as possible and get three free meals. Yeah, because that was back before 1968, when um, the Grand Slams were amateur tournaments. Um, amateurism. There was some money under the table, but mm. not much.
1: Now you try to hold on to your credentials so that you can get free power bars.
2: <laughs> well, it's always interesting. <laughs> you go, you seems... go through your allotment of the day, and then you go, hey, I, I got enough for protein bars. That's a that's another conversation. If you're at a Grand Slam. You stock up. You great food. Yeah. But if you're with someone in the main draw, you're treated a little bit differently if you're coaching someone who's in the qualities. You want money. You get more money for your food, and then if you're, once your player's out, you have 24 hours, and they say you get off the property. Yeah. Um, he, the name of the company, um, from a tennis standpoint, Sports Software Incorporated, but right. the, the name of the machine, the tool, CompuTennis, 1982, put it together. His son, who played tennis, he said his son, like most sons, was not listening to him, yeah. um, said he... Initially, he was trying to show his son just how to beat a girl who lived down, down the street from the same neighborhood. But his son was good enough to play at Stanford. Now, granted, Bill played you know, at Wimbledon, so mm-hmm. very, very high level. But to me, even if you're playing bottom line at Stanford, that's a really good tennis player. Solid, yeah. Uh, now his son's a professor of environmental engineering at Stanford. So Bill is an electrical pioneer of charting, father of modern statistics, so he combined his education, his playing ground, but his colleagues, uh, Tom Whitney, who invented the pocket calculator, also had a significant role in building Apple One. Another colleague, colleague, Alan Edberg, had a significant role in building the Apple II computer. Uh, the price, it was $3,500 in 1982. So, yeah, that's... What could you it's buy like, with $3,500 in 1982? No, no, what kind of
1: car could you buy? I feel like you, you could you definitely could, buy a car. You could definitely
2: buy a car. I mean, I you could it, buy a car for that today, but. In 1981. Not a Tesla. Um, I was given the job as a department head of a two-year program, and I was paid $13,000. That was my salary. So, I mean, I certainly made some money teaching tennis in the summer, um, but. I was paid $13,000. Side story to that, I have a brother who has a PhD, and if I had a PhD in 1981, I would have been paid $14,000. So I call, called my mother up and said, hey, when you see your, uh, <laughs> your son, my brother Mike, tell him his PhD is worth a $1,000. Mm-hmm. Um, the price never went down, and I think this is uh, very interesting. Unlike the pocket calculator, everybody bought a pocket calculator. yeah. So the price went way down, just supply and demand. But it, I think it really defined the tennis industry the unit was called CT 120 uh, first laptop and sold less than 200 units. It's amazing. Um, with uh, several years into it, he developed a piece a software program for PC computers. So people could chart. I re, I re, don't remember the price, but I remember these numbers uh, could have changed, but only changed slightly mm-hmm. um, is he sold uh, less than 1,100 software packages. So that's where you could chart on paper, and it was a certain system, um, serve, return, key shot, point in shot mm-hmm. even user stats. I like guess some kid would, after each point, they lose, they hit the racket on the court, you just push. With a, with a CT 120 on the court, you just push a button. But you that could happen? just, it does happen. <laughs> with uh, I always think of uh, stories. Mario Casentino became a very good player in, in, as a junior in Canada. I remember one long tiebreaker, a user stat, 18 times he said, oh, my God.
0: <laughs>
2: it's like, Casentino, you're not in church. You don't have to pray. You have to play. Uh, God has bigger problems. People are starving. <laughs> With, um, I remember having the, the computer courtside and people asking me what it was. Yeah. So certainly it was a novelty, to say the least, with so few of them. But we, when listeners are watching TV and the camera goes to the team, the, the entourage, the, the booth, the box, very seldom do you see anybody even taking notes. Yeah. I um, remember Harold, Harold Solomon was a player, a coach who took notes. Obviously he was a player too. Um, I've seen Paul Anicone take notes, but very seldom do you see – the coach writing anything down. Yeah. Uh, going back to Jim Verdick, he used to say that get a clipboard and put your brains down. My introduction to Bill was through Dennis Vandermeer and through Vic Braden. And they both had a, a great deal of respect for Bill.
0: All right. Back to the present. That was episode 20 with Bill Jacobson. On to the next, Dr. Jim Lair. This is episode number twenty-five. Let's take a listen again to Steve and Andy, talk about Dr. Jim Lair. But but it's been great going through
1: not only the notes that you know you have here tonight and talking about him, but also I've spent so much time going through your library of stuff, you know, a lot of different tapes and books that I've been able to um you know, curate all this content that you have in your library and, and be able to continue to learn. And, and some of the older tapes that you have, it's just been fun to, to study uh,
2: his work again in, in preparation for this, but also just in general. 16 second cure. Yeah. At that time that tape was produced. Uh, Jim was based at Nick Bolletieri tennis academy, Braden mm-hmm. in Florida. Yeah. The blue jean shorts were designed for McEnroe. Hmm. And when they were delivered, he said, I'm not wearing those. He's like, what? And then a young young Agassi uh, jumped all over that. Do you think you said, you cannot be serious? Um, yeah, let me just start going through some notes, and you can interject. Um, yeah. I, I think um, about, say, uh, Mark Jakes, um, mm-hmm. Dave Nostrand, you were at the Vic Braden Tennis College. Yeah. Was Jennifer Roberts there when you were there? No, I think we asked that. She may have.
1: I mean, you know, when I first started playing tennis you know I was 10 11 years old so it would have been right around 86 87 and I remember Jakes would come over to where I started playing the Bloomington Country Club in St. George Utah he would come over and play my first coach Clark Barton and
2: uh you know I just remember those matches a little bit but I I heard from Dave Nostrand today anyway with that um there was, I would say, some some deep study. Uh, so the the people that we trained back in those days. So let me just go through a few things. Uh, mm-hmm. As you mentioned, well-known sports psychologist, author of 17 books. Yeah. Uh, in their respective sports, worked with 17 number ones. Mm-hmm. Some of it, uh, the work he's done is covert, where it's kept a secret. Yeah. It's not really disclosed. Um, I was I watched a, a clip on YouTube where he was asked uh, about the Top top players, and he recently worked with Djokovic. Um, I remember he worked with Sabatini back. Sabatini played uh, from Argentina. She played back in the same era. Steffi Graf. Yeah, she was right there knocking on the door. But when she, when she worked with uh, Jim, she she really played a completely different style. She forced went forward on the hard court at, the, at Flushing Meadows. Won the uh, U.S. Yeah. Open.
1: Yeah, I mean Steffi.
2: You'd think more
1: players would have done that. Just because of the slice backhand. I mean, Vic used to always talk about, Vic Braden used to always talk about, you know, it was tough for someone who hits a slice backhand to, to beat you when, when you come in because a hard hit slice backhand goes at least 70 feet or so. And to pass somebody on the 65-9 cross court from the baseline to the single sideline or the uh, single sideline and service line on the opposite side is 65 feet, nine inches. So it would it'd be tough for anybody that has just really a slice backhand. Vic would to, to say pass you um, on that. So, you know, Sabatini,
2: she was able to take advantage of that. Going back even before Sabatini and Graf, uh, Borg and Vilas, Vic used to say it so so well that um, Borg was a better Vilas. And if you play the guy 20 times in a row, you've lost. You think you'd mix it up, try, try a different pattern. Yeah, exactly. Um, I remember uh, that match,
1: though.
2: Yeah. You know, we'll get around to having a, a podcast uh, about Vic with... Uh, also, a psychologist. I was with Vic at the Easter Bowl one time, and he said, uh, "Everybody's just playing baseline tennis. So you're playing somebody who's just a little better than you. You should just mail in the scores." Yeah. Arthur Ashe, um, in the 1980s, uh, was quoted as saying, "Jim may be the most important person in tennis today." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, Jim le- earned fame on many fronts, but one was working with tennis parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I met Jim. Um, in the through Dennis Vandermeer. Um, at that time, Jim was not that well known in the tennis industry. You just think this goes back. I mean, we're talking in the 70s. Yeah. Um, like so many, I went through training uh, led by Dennis. Jim did the same. I don't think anyone ever really forgets, uh, you know, those that were fortunate enough to watch Dennis Vandermeer work for the first time. So that's one thing I can say. I was, uh, um, smart enough like Jim to uh, say, I need to spend a lot of time with Dennis Vandermeer. Mm. I remember uh, for me, it was 77. It was a place called Walden on the Lake in Conroe Texas, but Jim uh, 1975. Dennis certainly could read people. and So many people would approach Dennis, but uh, Dennis realized that Jim possessed qualities and made him, uh, you know, really a key figure in the, the PTR, the Professional Tennis Registry. I became a member in 1979. Mm. Um, by 1981, I was only 26 years old. I was given the opportunity to revise this curriculum. It was a general recreation curriculum with an emphasis on tennis teaching, but I was allowed to make it a full fledged program. Tennis Tech. Tennis Tech. And Dennis Vandermeer, I just knew Dennis had to get involved. So I went to Hilton Head for my first spring break. I went to Hilton Head. You could make a spring break 10 days, pretty much. If You go the weekend before and the weekend after. Mm -hmm. And I went there to convince Dennis that he had to come to Tyler um, every year, and he did. But right away with having Dennis come, we had Jim Verdick and Jim Lair come, you know, spend time on our campus. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and of course, um, we had a podcast on on Jim Verdick. Yeah. Two world-class gyms. Mm -hmm. Gyms. G-E-M. They are a gym. Um, All three came to Tyler numerous times. Uh, In the summertime, I went back and forth to Hilton Head several times. But it was really throughout the 80s that I was really part of the PTR family. And so, again, it was Dennis, Jim, and Jim. Yeah. Um, You were a tester for the PTR as well also, weren't you? Yes. In fact, uh, with the USPTA as well. um, But the, the PTR and the USPTA for years we had the, the record with both organizations for testing the most students at one time, one place. At Tennis Tech. Tennis Tech. Yeah. Um, so, but Sweet Briar is a beautiful school in Virginia. You fly into Lynchburg, um, but it, it's such a great place to go in the summer because you could go, and I remember having some friends go with me as well, where um, the you, there would be tennis program. Um, that was at one point is Tennis University, which covered all aspects was 10 days. But the mini courses, uh, Jim Verdick on team coaching, team building, and Jim Lair on on mental toughness. Mm. So they were sometimes even back to back. And I can remember, um, you have to think, the clock turns back, this is a long, long time ago, is that, uh, you know, they had such admiration for each other, but Lair would come in and and just be there to be part of uh, Jim's weekend program as well. So they Uh. could... It it was really, really a neat experience. It's um, interesting because, you know, I
1: think of, okay, Jim Lair, mental toughness, but when I think of Jim Verdick, I just think toughness.
2: You know, after all the video and everything that I've studied for yeah, you know, the, years
1: from him, he's just, he's like a tough dude.
2: Well, when it comes down to studying, coaches. that there's always so many similarities. It comes down to, Jim, i say Jim Lair's favorite word, character, maybe the other one is energy. Mm-hmm. Um, with... Our degree program, so we needed textbooks. We had labs, so we, um, as you mentioned, in our library, you could go and listen to audio cassettes, videotapes, private videotapes of uh, yeah, long courses from long weekends. We're going to put workbooks. some of those up on, on YouTube here this year. We've Got a lot planned, and uh, yeah, I'm busy going through a lot of that stuff. Part of my days. Um, Jim Lair class act. he's still graciously thanks Dennis and Pat Vandermeer, the PTR family. They, I would say they pretty much, you know, were the launching pad for his career. And then from that, mm-hmm. because he was a total package guy, he really made a contribution to the tennis world. Initially with Jim, I would say there was naysayers because um, that's always, always the case in the beginning. Yeah. He was presenting new material to the tennis world. Yeah. And again, this is in the eighties and tennis, it boomed in the seventies when the tiebreaker um, shortened matches, and therefore it could be put in a time capsule and matches could be played on TV. Um, what he basically did is he studied what players did um, in between points. Yeah. Now, I mean, obviously he's a licensed psychologist where um, Tim Galloway's not. He, but Inner, inner Tennis um, is the best-sold book of all time. Yeah, Inner, inner t- Tennis. The Inner Game of Tennis. But yeah. um, so I can remember Vic, I was in the Vandermeer camp. And I was in the Braden camp. Um, in other words, I had spent so much time around both of them. Yeah. I remember Vic asking me, and he was very skeptical. Vic was uh, very skeptical of the inner game of tennis, too, where there's a segment where pretend you're the ball. Mm-hmm. And, and Vic goes, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> where um, Vic was, just show me how to hit it. Yeah. Just show me how to hit the ball. Show me how to hit it. And you know, I can remember being in meetings, um, we have a coach here who's uh, good friends with Tom Gullickson. Tim Gullickson spent time with Vic and I was the hitting partner and it was getting Ariel, Vic Braden, Tim Gullickson. And I was just lucky to be there. I was feeding balls, hitting balls. And we were getting Ariel say, I'm going to build a machine that will beat you. Don't feel bad. Cause it'll also beat Borg. I'm going to build a machine. <laughs> that sounds just like, a so um, the, um, so at that time, Um, you know, you know, the, the things about, you know, the rituals in between points is that Vic had to just be told and be confirmed is that Lair would say he'd get around to saying the number two thing, the the two most important things is number one for mental toughness, you have, have to have strokes that hold up under pressure. Yeah. And you gotta be super, super fit. I think that first one, I mean, strokes that hold up under pressure.
1: And I think we talked about this before, maybe even last week. Where Vic would always just, um, you know, his whole thing was it's an engineering problem that causes the mental problem, you know? Yeah. With the stroke problem that gets people
2: Well, I not mean, so mentally tough. I mean, they're obviously, you know. If you bounce the ball really well, it's not going to help your forehand. You know, you could blow on your hand. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, the celebrities would spend so much time at pro-ams around the best players and they could copy all the idiosyncrasies, yeah. but that didn't mean they could copy how they hit the ball. Yeah. Uh, but up until, uh, you know, Jim's breakthrough and contributions, people were really talking about how to regulate the mind during all the stops and starts. There's so many interruptions. In yeah. tennis, about 70% of the time, you're not playing tennis, yeah. With um where it, it obviously it, it does come down to the nuts and bolts, but the four the four parts of the game, number one is the mental emotional. That's always always comes first. You gotta be able to control the mind to control the body. Yeah, everything
1: Vic used Vic Braden he used to always say, you know, it's all in the brain, you know, it's the signal to the
2: muscles. So you gotta do the best you can to keep your brain calm and keep it working well. But it certainly didn't take long because um, on so many fronts, um, you know, I think Jim Lehrer is so likable, major people skills. I mean, he's a jock, but, you know, an academician, intellectual curiosity. He's a baseball player, right? Yeah, highly educated. Um, That was uh, his first love. Grew up in Colorado. Um, But, again, I think, again, Braden and Bradenites, when it comes down to those two key things, yeah. strokes of whole number of pressure, be, be super fit.
0: Yeah. Welcome back to the present. Number 25, Dr. Jim Lair. We have two podcasts about Dr. Jim Lair. The second one is with him, a conversation with him, an interview really. So go ahead and watch that one. If you haven't very insightful. Next one, episode number 32, with peter burwash but peter burwash yeah let's get
2: going uh, your background with peter like so many of the um coaches i've worked with i would say is indirect like so you have you have such a direct connection to vic brady and having spent so many years with him
1: yeah no i'm excited to go through this um obviously i've, I've never had the opportunity to meet peter in person but learn through you. And obviously in the library here, we have a lot of material, a lot of books, tapes, um, cassette tapes to go through, which is great. Um, I just remember, yeah, the first time I showed up in Tampa when we first connected years and years and years ago, I mean, my you know longtime background with Vic. So the information was there, but I just remember there's just so much application going on that was able to learn which was great. And that just comes from all these different pillars and obviously all the different coaches we continue to learn from, but you know, all the different art form really to do the application of oftentimes Braden information
2: with Vic. Um, you've heard me say this, I know you've repeated it, which I appreciate you know, Vic Braden's the Christmas tree, but the mm-hmm. ornaments Peter Burwash and Peter Burwash international mm-hmm. It would just be a very plain Christmas tree. I mean, it's it's amazing what you know, he did for the, the curriculum that we put together. And it's it's really Peter and Peter Burwash International. Yeah. With uh, going to a conference, Peter's always speaking at conferences. So that's the first time, you know, and many times sat in um, lectures, but 60, 90 minutes just doesn't get it. I respect uh, people who go to conferences. It's much better if you can go observe a coach. And even a week is a snapshot. Yeah, you know, People were to go a week and be able to circulate. But I started my journey in the mid-70s. Um, that's when I first hear Peter. He's 10 years older than I am. Uh, I'm 66. He's 76, give or take. Um, he ran a camp for coaches where he grew up in Canada. Uh, it was actually... Um, in Perry Sound, Bobby Orr's hometown, Kent uh, Manitowabi. And there's also Manitou. There's a camp and a resort. We hope everybody knows who Bobby Orr is, but if you don't, try number to four, that. Bobby Orr. <laughs> um, I don't want to go off into it, much of a tangent, and digress, but unbelievable hockey player. <laughs> so yeah, Perry Sound, Ontario, north of Toronto. With that, I never went. But I, I heard of Peter about Burwash's camp for coaches. Mm-hmm. And it was commonplace back in those days to try to get the notes. I still have the notes. You know, I have uh, prepared 15 pages of notes just to talk about Peter and PBI. And that's without going through these uh, weekend workshops that we have on video.
1: Yeah. No, we're uh, going to break this up. Just so you know, we're breaking this up into two parts. So tonight will be part one, next week part
2: two. So that means it will only be twenty hours, ten hours so, yeah, and ten, right? Ten and ten. <laughs> With uh, just through that course, I think Peter had a rec- his name was recognized within the tennis teaching industry. I would consider like our other mentors that Peter is a, a pioneer. Hmm. He was one of the first um, to put courses and camps together for training tennis teachers. I think most people um, they just learned by playing the game and. They learned from perhaps the coaches they worked with or the local coach serving apprenticeship. Right. I know that you know this because you're spending so much time in our library. But we we have audio cassettes. Yeah, and we have so many of Peter Burwash. Yeah, I lived in van for two years. first year going to tournaments, but the second year I went all over the country. And went from one resort to the next, and had a nice sound system in the van. But really mm-hmm. didn't play a lot of music. I played voices of coaches and mm-hmm. so. It's fun uh, to have you going through those and saving those tapes. You you
1: had a a cassette player or was it an A-track? It was a cassette player. Yeah.
2: And, you know, 1974, I remember Peter saying, I haven't said take your racket back since 1964. Mm -hmm. It used to just be take your racket back, take your racket back, racket back, racket back. Yeah. Um, And, you know, when people have a solo movement, they just take their arm back, racket back, and then they turn, and they end up having to swing three, four feet behind them.
0: Yeah.
2: In 1981, I had a chance to put this academic curriculum together, revised a general recreation program into a comprehensive tennis program. And Peter Berwash, he called me. I think that really defines Peter. He's a go-getter. He initiated, hey, I read what you're doing. I want to come up. And he did. He came up on his own nickel. Um, You know, it was was not about, you know, okay, how much money can I make? He just wanted to contribute. Mm -hmm. By that time, he had moved his operation from – Honolulu PBI. Um, Peter Berush International was based in Honolulu for years and years, but um, or I should say Hawaii. But then he went to Houston. Uh, Bernard Guzman came with him. Um, you know, Peter's people skills, his ambition, you know, the drive, his, his desire to make a difference. But it was in 1974 where he set up his company, Peter Berush International, better known PBI. Uh, It's still in operation. All our listeners need to do is go to Mm -hmm. www.peterburwashinternational.com. Still the largest company of tennis teaching pros in the world. Business card of his staff, you know, PBI tennis specialists. They're far, far more than just tennis teaching pros. Um, Primarily work at five star hotels all over the world. Um, Obviously, the numbers would change, but a safe guess years ago is that Peter would have 100, 100. Tennis teaching professionals at 50 destinations around the world.
1: Let me just really quick just
2: ask you, when he came
1: to Tyler, Texas, the first time to Tennis Tech, and that was the first program of its kind, what were his thoughts? Was he impressed with what you were doing, or what was his
2: kind of feedback? Like, wow, this is cool? Or? No, I, yeah, for sure. Because um, It's in my notes that um, so few people had any formal training, mm-hmm. uh, clinical academic training for, for teaching. And you know his whole life has been dedicated well, to many, many causes, but one certainly is um a key word for tennis for Peter is is, is trying to make that was always trying to make tennis the tennis teaching side of it. We're called pros, but are we really professional? Professional, yeah. And he came back year after year, right? Well, we'll get into that. Okay. Uh, um, PBI and his, his pro staff came back, so so for, for throughout the nineteen eighties. Um, And you know the the students I trained during that time. I'm sure they'll get a a kick out of listening to this. Um, Better be listening. Better be listening. Uh, I was never on Peter's payroll. I never worked for Peter. I was honored to be offered a job by PBI without going through their extensive interview process. Uh, And you've already asked that, um, but it wasn't like they had just met me uh, at a coffee shop. I they. I get to meet a lot of the key staff members for years. The interview process they used to run and Peter, um, at one point, I'm sure it's even higher now. it interview over 10,000 people mm. and it wasn't interviewing people one-on-one. They would bring a group of people in, but it was over th- three days, about 15 hours. Wow. Um, and through that, um, you know, just my job when I started training tennis teachers was to find other people jobs. So the interview, you know, Peter Burwash 101 is, I still say that to this day, life is an interview. Um, especially when you're a tennis teaching professional, it's almost like you're on call. You know, you, you go to the grocery store, you're just going to run into people. Yeah. You, know, you, you actually have a public position. Yeah, on stage a little bit. Yeah. Um, Peter, here's some statements. You know, tennis teachers used to dress like slobs. It's really, it's gone back down mm-hmm. with... Keep in mind when I was training tennis teachers, they would be taking the PTR and the USPTA test and how, just how they presented themselves. Yeah. Another uh, Peter Burwash, tennis teachers are one step above a beach bump. <laughs> with, yeah, you, know, you don't want to come, you don't want to show up like you're returning from a, a five day fishing trip. So I, our work with PBI, PBI gave us a leg up on um, the interview process. Yeah. So he, after he came on the initial visit, um, you know, he would send a, a team of his coaches. It, our coaches were trained our tennis teaching professionals. When you're on an interview, show up semi casual. You know, so you're wearing a, a guy's going to be wearing khaki pants. Yeah. You know, the, the light blue shirt. You know, you got the blazer. Yeah, I Um blazer. You got a tie. So you, you 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 know you don't come in wearing a, a three piece suit, but you show up with a your tennis outfit in a small bag. Mm. Then you bring a, then you bring a small shoulder bag, two bags, shoulder bag, the tennis equipment, the gear to get on court. And then that shoulder bag where you, you know, you're going to pull out three copies of your resume and it just, you're not going to just make all these mistakes. You know, a lot of times people that, you know, they're just knocking the door and can I have a job? Yeah. They
0: don't even set up the interview. All right, back from the past. That was a clip from episode number 32 on Peter Burwash. Steve and Andy have two episodes dedicated to Peter Burwash. So when you get the chance, go ahead and revisit them if you haven't already watched them or listened to them. The next podcast we will listen into is number 38 talking about another great bass pillar, Mr. Harry Hopman. See you in a bit. Always Mr. Hopman because of
2: respect. Hmm. One of his players, Fred Stolle, who may have been in his doghouse the most because mm-hmm. of his sense of humor, <laughs> reported that Stolle would always crack the joke at the wrong time. Well, the, the time that was right for everyone but their leader, Mr. Hopman.
0: hmm <laughs>
2: Stallie, like so many people, summed up Mr. Robin in one word: respect. He commanded so much respect. We'll go through that. His record yeah. is winning ways. I thought to get into some history. Start off with his track record. What the players accomplished? Is so amazing. But one nickname, they they were pushed. Captain Bly. Captain <laughs> Bly is part of the British Navy. He was uh, the captain. The book, the true story, mutiny on the Bounty. The mutineers put their captain adrift in a dinghy. He drifted <laughs> for 3,000 miles. He survived. The name was quite cl- clever, as players imagined, putting Mr. Hopman to sea in a dinghy. <laughs> <laughs> misery enjoys company, and misery enjoys laughter. Captain Blythe, then, 17 years later, was assigned to Australia to deal crime and corruption. <laughs> so as players, the inside joke was to strip Mr. Hopman of this command and send him a drift. They also teased that he would he would return, find out all about their escapades. <laughs> the Aussie boys had their fun. To them, beer was mother's milk. That's what they called it. Mother's milk. Keep in mind, we got to go through this many, many years ago. Mr. Hopman controlled their pockets. There was no pro tennis. It really comes down to comparing it to today. <laughs> um There were no rich players. There was actually really no money. Lou Hode was one of his golden boys. Here's an example. And again, Harry controlled their purse strings as they represented Australia. Davis Cup. He would fine them for things like not wearing a sports jacket, having a few stubbles on their face, not shaving. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a story where Mr. Hoffman's on the courtside bench, so he's there to be coaching Hopminder, excuse me, Lou Hode, who they called Popeye. who's so strong. Yeah, to, I remember
1: Vic uh, Braden telling me a story about Lou Hode picking up a player just with one arm.
2: Yeah, that's holding note. him up against that's, the uh, locker. That's in my nose. He's reprimanded reprimanding Hode during the match because he didn't shave. Yeah, well, the story with that, Dick used to tell it all the time. He said that, you know, to him, Jack Kramer is the best player he ever saw play, mm-hmm. except for on a given day, Lou Hode was. But there was a, a drunk, and he wasn't being very nice to, that's right, a couple of girls. And yeah. uh, Ode picked him up by one arm, <laughs> yeah. and he carried him out, and um, kept, you know, picked him up with his one arm and carried the never dropped, never let his beer down. Yeah. And he took the took the one guy outside, and he said, "Hey, you're not behaving. To welcome back tomorrow." Yeah, you got to be uh, strong with those rackets. But our old, our library, lots of files, lots of notes. Throughout the pre- presentation, we'll share topics related to Mr. Hoffman's coaching uh, coaching, coaching philosophy. I think maybe that's a good idea. Sorry, parents, but, you know, we just
1: strike a contract where you go, hey, if your kid misbehaves, it's $5 for this, $5 for this, you know, different infractions. Well, I think the difference is that they
2: just, today, they just have mommy's plastic card. <laughs> They're just like, oh, no problem, here you go. <laughs> do you have Square? I do think. Sell, in- in- ben- Venmo? with what you're saying is uh, a lot of the principles though, that, that he stood for have gone away. Yeah, exactly. Mr. Hopman, one of our pillars, one of the pillars of the great base. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one that I spent the least amount of time with, um, but just, just in respect alone, but fitness would be another factor. Yeah. Um, when I think of a sports psychologist, you know, I compare people, I compare their work, as I mentioned in a previous podcasts to Jim Lair. With fitness, I always think of Hopman. Um, you know, we have kids come and visit it, and they tell us that they work with a fitness trainer twice a week and that they can't do one push-up. Yeah.
1: From what I've heard, you know, it's not that it, he was so much a taskmaster. To me, it just sounds like he was really principled, you know, in all of his coaching. that It's not so much that he was, you know, this drill sergeant, although it may have come up that way to a lot of people, but just that he was really principled. Everything that he did,
2: yeah, I, w- I would say today, um, you know, players is an argument where the players today would be stronger because of the knowledge for nutrition and fitness. But there's there's really no way that they're they're tougher. The difference between being stronger physically and tougher mentally, yeah. Um, top players today don't consider playing all three events at a major back in Mister Hoffman's day. The men. You know they would play, and you know he was in charge of Davis Cup, so he primarily coached men, mm-hmm. where um, singles, doubles, and mixed. You know, a lot of times today, and that's when money came into the game. Very, very top players, marquee players, they just play singles. Yeah, there is many factors, though. Don't want to just beat up on the players of today by any means. It's the speed of the ball that you certainly can talk about hard courts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before they played. Um, three of the four surfaces were on grass, the French being on red clay. His, his players played 39 feet. They played from the baseline to the net. Yeah. Trained to, uh, be all court players, go forward, pressure the players to miss. Uh, so facts born in 1906, died in 1985, age of 79, died of heart failure after spending the entire day on the tennis court. We had students at his place when he passed in 1985. Um, Throughout the presentation, you, you remember his life. He, I think listeners, he, he lived at a different time. Corporal punishment, for example, back in the day when you get paddled at school, you'd go home and get paddled for getting paddled. <laughs> um, fair enough, corporal punishment has been dropped, just like you know people today. I don't think parents spank children like they used to. They used to do it in public. Did that <laughs> ever happen to you? Um, getting paddled for getting paddled? No, no, but I uh, had the fear of it though. <laughs> had the fear of it. Even I had a with, few hairbrushes broken, broken across my. The, um, my, my father. Hair. My father could just do it through his voice. Mm. Uh, grew up at a different time, coached at a different time, but there's a thousand lessons that could be learned. One of the reasons Aussies are tough. Certainly, we'll go through the legend of uh, Mister Ta- Hopman, but one thing to say is the Australian, Australia is so far away and they traveled and they traveled together. And you're, you guys Aussies, for example, you know, they would go to Europe for the entire clay court season. Mm. I think of a lot of US ATP players last couple of decades, they complain about the length of the red clay court season. So they may skip the clay mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, you know, cut the clay court season short, um, I know a lot of American players. They'll go to Europe, say play two weeks, come home for a week, and then go back. Back in the day, they would never ever think about that. <laughs> um, he entered the Hall of Fame in 1978. Small in stature, bigger than life, five foot seven. What I was he inducted for? As a contributor, or other category, would be builder. Builder, just yeah. like Ball, just like or Terry or Hob, yeah. um, Braden. And now this year, upcoming uh, Vandermeer. Yeah. But a very small man, 5'7", but I don't think anyone, small in stature, bigger than life. Don't think everyone ever thought that Mr. Hoffman was short. Mm-hmm. Um, his achievements, bigger than life. Uh, his father was a headmaster. This is interesting. Can you imagine your father being the principal of your both your elementary school and then when he finally went to high school, then his father <laughs> became the headmaster of uh, the <laughs> High school he attended. like he would just go, stop
1: following me.
2: (laughs) Uh, You have to guess that that would have have been a factor to uh, uh, make Hopman the disciplinarian that he was. Started tennis late, almost 13. I don't think I've ever been around anyone who's commanded so much respect. Uh, He reached the finals of three Aussie Opens, 1932. That's... uh, he was considered the number six player in the world. Before forty years later, before there was the first official computer, mm-hmm. but there would be polls. Um, he won seven majors. He won two uh, Aussie doubles. He won four mixed and one mixed. He won four of those with his first wife, Nell Hall. She died of a tumor in 1968. So he was a player. A lot of times, people don't re- even know that. Yeah. Um, Lost in four finals to other majors. Started coaching after World War II. Um, he was a captain and coach of the Australian Davis Cup team 22 years. He won 16. That's amazing. 16. Uh, Here we go. 1972. Zunteich. <laughs> Let's hear your German. Dankeschön. <laughs> I always think a, a will digress. I was riding the train in Germany. Yeah. Guy sneeze and, uh, I said Gesundheit, and he said, where are you from in America? Hey,
1: where are you from in America?
2: One word. 1972. Um, 1973, the Davis Cup format changed. It became a total knockout tournament. Up to 1972, the winner would wait. So just think, if you were, your team won 16 times, mm-hmm. you didn't play any preliminary rounds. You just waited. Winners wait. Yeah. And you would wait for the, the challenging team. And that worked really well for Hopman because his players would just train more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They'd train more. Now, before um, before 73, only four countries won the Davis Cup. And they were all the uh, Grand Slam countries, U.S., Australia, France, and Britain. Mm. Um, Wimbledon was run the same way. Um, the The winner would wait, the, person, the player who won the year, year before <laughs> – They just waited for the challenger to get through the knockout matches. Um, Lots and lots of time to train. It it has changed. That always comes up about how tennis has improved so much because it's a global sport now. In 84, tennis returned to the Olympics as a demonstration sport. 88 became official sport. I think people know that because of Graf winning the uh, Golden Grand Slam. She won all four majors. Yeah. Um, His players... Uh, There's so many, but here's a dozen. Ken McGregor, Lou Hode, Ken Rosewall, Neil Frazier, John Newcomb, Fred Stolle, Tony Roach, Roy Emerson, Ashley Cooper, Rex Hartwig, Irvin Rose, and Mally
0: Anderson. Welcome back once again. That was episode number 38. Steve and Andy also have two podcasts about Mr. Harry Hopman. so same as last time, if you have the time and haven't listened or watched I'd highly recommend those two next podcast number 43 pillar Dennis Vandermeer
2: time marches on Dennis Vandermeer amazing 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 Dennis Vandermeer yeah uh, one of the pillars we're on pillar number seven pillars have, of the great base yeah so uh, certainly uh Dennis, um, amazing. How many times could I say that word, amazing? <laughs> With a great base, to think of Dennis Vandermeer, for my notes, um, I read one article prepared for this podcast and spent less than a half an hour um, reading about Dennis. Mm-hmm. We have so much material on Dennis in our library to research, although I really don't have to. Because being a trench pro, being out there every day teaching, Yeah, um, there's just so many skills that um, I've learned from Dennis Van Meer. that the ideas, the concepts. He was born in 1933, died in 2019, died at the age of 86, suffered a stroke. Almost the last 10 years of his life, he simply was not himself. Mm. His wife, Pat, and the entire PTR family, the Professional Tennis Registry, Organization for Tennis Teachers that Dennis founded assisted him in the, the remaining years of his life. Uh, I always think of Dennis as South African. He's a native of Nambia, a small country in West Africa. Mm. His parents were missionaries. Started tennis at the age of six. He didn't start on a tennis court. His mother would find a dried out patch of dirt, use two sticks, as mm-hmm. net posts, toss some ball, toss some balls. Yeah. The net was a string. The little ball machine called the twister, yeah, tennis twist. Dennis Vandermeer. Oh, what, a, what an amazing guy. Showman. So, phenomenal teacher. But he called those twisters a little ball machine because they reminded him of his mother who. His little, le- little mother. Late mother who uh, um, would pitch him tennis balls. Yeah. His parents eventually left the nomadic lifestyle being missionaries and they moved to Johannesburg. Dennis began to be formally taught. In other words, he took lessons from tennis teaching professionals. He mm-hmm. became one of the best juniors in South Africa at the age of nineteen. Dennis and he told the story often. He had a tryout to be in a, to be a playing member of the Davis Cup team, South African Davis Cup. Yeah, and he choked. He just uh, told told the story about how he choked. Yeah. Um,
1: with I've read that uh, some people would say, "Oh, it's a good thing that he did because then he became," you know. One of the best teachers, if yeah. You hadn't
2: have choked, maybe you wouldn't have had Dennis Vandermeer the teacher, right? Um, I think if Dennis is an Afrikaner, uh, he came to the United States, his name was uh, Dennis Merva. I miss if I'm pronouncing that changes to Dennis Vandermeer.
1: I think you're proving the point. <laughs> I don't know how, how to pronounce it either. Um, Move, uh, it, it would be mispronounced for sure. It's like Brett Favre, you know, that movie, uh, something about
2: Mary. Yeah, what's
1: Brett Favre
2: uh, doing here? I heard from a South African today. Uh, how would you say Petrus cookie
1: Yeah, cookie That's Kukimor. how I would say. <laughs> I don't know. That Petrus, was, I was if with Petrus Pete. is listening, which I'm sure he is at some point. Hopefully, we did that justice.
2: I with uh, Petrus, I was with it one time, and, and this gentleman, you know, he said, "Yeah, I'm Petrus." And of course, the way he pronounced it, the guy goes, "Well, Pete, it's good to meet you." <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like Patriots. Yeah. With, um, But Dennis certainly liked the sound. It, it, it ended in a strong syllable. Uh, we have a young Canadian boy here. who's a very good tennis player. Mm. Hayden Malik. And I love to just call him. Of course, we have another boy called Aiden, So just call him by his last name. Yeah, Mal- Malik. It's go, Malik. Malik. Uh, yeah. You think of our uh, great bass, there's two South Africans. Uh, Dennis Van Amir and Bill Jacobson. So 25%. You know, two out of four. Uh, I've trained many South sa- Africans. Yeah, I've trained yeah. many South African coaches, many South African players. Uh, been to South Africa. Uh, very respectful of the the culture, the Afrikaners. Hey, you've played with lions. Yes, I had a choice uh, one time to. Uh, <laughs> I was with you. Were rubbing with, the belly with, of a lion. You with, were with Petrus and his wife family. Wrestling. So, as a tune-up before we went to uh, Cougar, Kruger park, mm-hmm. we were at a small Kruger park. And so as my host, he said, there's a, like a 14 foot snake. And, yeah. and as my host being so polite, he said, would you like to have an encounter with the snake? And I said, well, what does that mean? He goes, well, I'll just pay a fee. And then you can have your photo taken with the snake around you. And I said, well, are there any other options? And he said, yes, you could feed a lion. And I said, well, I'll do that. This This would never happen in America. I had to fill out, I had to fill out paperwork. And the the gentleman said, well, let's feed them first. I said, I think that's a good idea. (laughs) And seriously, they have a male, female in the area that they were in. It's like they took a a big Turkey. It was like 20 pounds of meat and threw one over the fence first. There's a fight. And then two seconds later threw the other one over. Yeah. But I actually had a choice between the old lion or four cubs and I looked at him and I said, I'll take the old lion. Yeah. And so anyway, maybe I should go, go forward more on Dennis, but this is an African story where the gentleman told me, he goes, big guy, he said, you'll just stand behind me and we'll be giving the lion, it was like a big container of milk. Yeah. And come some concoction. And he said, he's just interested in the beverage. Yeah. He's just interested in the milk. He's going to take his paw and put it on your foot. And he's just telling you, because, you know, I, I, he, the trainer, you know, he got out of the way, so it looked like I was there by myself. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. He said, the lion will put his paw on your, on your foot. He's just telling you that you're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And then right before the container's empty, he goes, you'll just slip out. And we said, okay. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> With... But the uh, the discipline, I think the Roger Federer success story, I think so, a big part of that is his mother is an Afrikaner, the, the discipline and the respect. When asked why South African juniors, there's so many years and years ago that were just world-class players, you know, why they didn't cut it and make it all the way to the pro level. Dennis added to that answer. You know, one thing would be the distance that South Africans had to travel. Um and they were just so far away from the, you know, on the other side of the world, they were so far away from the highest levels of competition. The financial costs, the exchange rate between the RAND, the, the South African RAND, the U.S. dollar was so extreme. Yeah. But Dennis said the, the parents of the Afrikaners, they had too much discipline, and their children were sometimes suppressed. Yeah. Um, Loosen up a little bit. Another way to <laughs> mention that, the parents were too authoritative and their children felt like they were not allowed to, to make mistakes. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I told that to one South African. goes, yeah, now I know it's my parents' fault. Yeah. So no, you don't need to twist and turn that. But, um, but Dennis, like um, Lynette Fetter, you know, there's South Africans that have spent most of their time in another country. You know, With respect, it varies from one place to another, from one family to another. It varies from one topic to another. Um, for example, discipline for an at, people have discipline for academics, and sometimes not for sports, or vice versa.
1: But you're going to learn from more from mistakes, right? I mean, I just think of you know, you go, "Hey, the stove is hot. The stove is hot." But then you know, you really learn by you when you touch the hot stove, and you go, "Oh, that's hot." Yeah, like I say, you J- get the burn.
2: In Japan, I a lot of time teaching tennis in Japan, and I think the Japanese, hey, too much mistake, too or too much respect, too much respect. Um, I can remember one time meeting with uh, Munihiro Yoshida at the tennis training center in Chiba. And you know, we're in his office till after midnight and I came out and everyone was still there. And I yeah. said, I said, they whispered, why is everyone still here? And they said, you don't go home till the boss goes home. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., I think we're going on the other side of that where there's too little, um, in working with Afrikaners impressed with their manners and their work ethic, Dennis Vander, Vandermeer, Great manners, great work ethic. Mm. Uh, for example, it's Oom uh, um Steve, Uncle Steve, Coach Steve. They would never just call me Steve. Yeah. Um, Roger fetter's mother, Lynette. Um, one of our students, Raven Klassen, a South African, was addressing Lynette and called her Tani, which is Oom um, um for for the man and Tani for the woman. Like, and then very quickly she said, like No, she said no i'm not that I'm not that old don't don't tawny me yeah. um, with uh but, but a new pursuit you know after Dennis choked in the Davis Cup tryout, his coach at the time suggested that Dennis teach tennis to help himself with his confidence. I think that's something that we do quite a bit. The highest form of retention for learning is to teach mm-hmm. the teacher always learns more than the student, but in peer teaching it certainly gives a student confidence, and Dennis was okay with confidence as far as his presentation skills. But through that, when he started teaching, Dennis found his calling, he never really looked back. And he's very, so fortunate at such a young age that, you know, where his parents were missionaries for education, he became a missionary for tennis. Mm -hmm. He moved to the U.S. in 1961. He was 28 years old, 27, 28. Um, To reflect upon his tennis teaching, his tennis teaching genius is it's very interesting L- learning the game in a setting that did not provide a tennis court i think that has a lot to do with the hunger yeah for Dennis, you know passion was second to none he was born into a life where he was constantly observing teachers his parents and the challenges they faced uh with underfunded um situations mm-hmm. um you know, South Africans, it used to be a requirement to be in the military. So Dennis certainly said that he learned a lot. Um, and he's just so outstanding with group dynamics, but it was a mandatory requirement. Uh, obviously, playing skills. Um, there's just so many things that made Dennis really the total package. Yeah. Um, yeah, YouTube, looking back at film, doesn't really, I think, do justice to those who are so fortunate. Like, like myself, spent so much time around him. Great speaker, funny, tireless worker, highly intelligent, hungry for knowledge.
0: Welcome back from that clip, podcast number 43. There are also two podcasts dedicated to Dennis Vandermeer. Go ahead and watch those when you get the, the time. The final pillar, Vic Braden. Episode number 49. Let's listen in. Vic Braden. With our podcast, thanks for listening. We're,
2: I think, closer to 100 hours than we are 50 hours. Yeah. I put on Facebook today an an extract from John Fitzgerald Kennedy's remarks at a dinner awarding Nobel Prize winners Mm. of the Western Hemisphere. Quoting JFK, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of knowledge that has ever been gathered together at the White House with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> Someone once said that Great Thomas quote. Jefferson was a gentleman of 32 who could calculate an eclipse, survey an estate, tie an artery, plan an analysis, try a cause, break a horse, and dance a minuet. <laughs> when I th- think of Vic Braden, I think of that quote from JFK because Vic Braden was Thomas Jefferson. I yeah. mean, just... I can remember walking around the Tyler junior college campus. We talked about tennis tech. Not sure if we did tennis tech justice, but we did talk about it for two podcasts mm-hmm. that, you know, you walk across the college campus with Vic Braden philosophy, psychology could be AV, the audio video yeah, um, physics department. Yep. You walk right in and take the class over yep. But pillar. Number eight, we have eight pillars. Um, our tennis course, Tennis Intelligence Applied, we mentioned over 100 coaches, but we have eight pillars, and we say Vic for last. We say that Vic is the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. All the others are ornaments, and great, great, great ornaments. We certainly wouldn't be the same, not to um, underplay, underestimate the other seven pillars, but yeah, it is a beautiful tree. But Vic is the stand, and he's the star. Yeah. Um, I have an old resume here. I've got my Vic Braden,
1: one of my Vic Braden Tennis College uh, from back in the day T-shirts, and I also have my Adidas three stripe, sort of polyester mix
2: sweatpants on because that was big deal. Vic, um I can remember it was on the Vic Braden tennis staff. At one point, we were wearing Head clothes, and then we started wearing Wilson clothes. But, yeah, but Vic, he had an, an Isaac
1: shirt. And yeah, the, the polo shirt. With, uh, it was easy to buy him presents because it was
2: like, hey, man, get your polo shirt. Vic was uh, born in Monroe, Michigan, August 2nd, 1929. Yeah. He died October 6th, 2014, 85 years old, yeah. 85 years young. Yeah. A family of seven, but actually, family of eight, one of his sisters. Um, she died basically after giving birth. To her son, and then Vic's parents raised her son. Yeah, held the baby for one day. Wow, tragic. Melody's wife, um, and then they have uh, Vic has five children. Um, with a few things about a sports background, he was a high school starting quarterback, junior senior year um, starting guard in basketball. In tennis, he played high school, college, and pro tennis. He said that he was uh, played guy, baseball too in high school. Yeah, it says here in his resume, yeah. uh, legion league, a catcher and a pitcher. Yeah. But, um, you know, played against people. You know, I remember he used to tell a story about playing Frankie Parker, a great player from Chicago. This guy does not miss. <laughs> but, um, you know, he thought he was a little bit cannon fodder. He was just in the eight, in that day going first, second round. Yeah. In the tournament with the big boys. Yeah. Uh, table tennis player with... Um, yeah, Vic to me, you know, licensed psychologist, self-made biomechanist, author, TV commentator, three-sport athlete, professional, um, or perhaps a world-class comedian. Yeah, for sure.
1: I think that's where people know him from his from his humor. You know, he was such a great entertainer, really, as he, edu- as he educated people. But a lot of times, and you say this a lot, that, you know, sometimes people are just laughing so hard that the information goes right over their head.
2: Yeah, no, I think Pick uh, was definitely misinterpreted. I don't know anyone who accumulated, assembled more tennis information. Yeah. J- jumping ahead on that 1975, one take only. Um, mixed Doubles is a fantastic adventure. Go for a winner, yeah. name of the film. So good. And it really stands the test of time, and it's for all doubles. It's not just for mixed doubles by any yeah. means. Yeah. So I was living in Boca Raton, Florida. I was a perennial tennis bum. I was asked if I would, on a Saturday and Sunday, play a film. It was go for a winner. Yeah, and so I, the challenge was for me was loading and reloading the film (laughs) on the projector, but I I just sat right there. That was my, my duty as a volunteer. No, it stands the test of time. That video, no, for sure. I I played it many times, and but by by, I think that was a. It's a really, really interesting experience for me because by watching that over and over again, um, just knew how knowledgeable he was. was. It was not just the jokes. Yeah, it was like, you know, like, um, dun, dun 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 dun. Well, just for example, um, you know, who, why would you put the more consistent player in the do score two right-handed players? Yeah, you know, the inside-out backhand return. How yeah. it's it's really the left field. It's like the kid who can't play baseball you put in right field. Yeah. So how more balls go to the, the deuce court, 85% of players are right-handed yeah. and they're they're running around the forehand. They're pulling across their body and the ball goes to the deuce court. Yeah, 85% of players, um, besides being right-handed, 85% of players are taught a really extreme grip, a strong, strong continental grip, even elbow in. Mm. Where's the racket face? Yeah. <laughs> it faces the deuce court. It's yeah. a yeah. deuce court player. Vicky used to always say that, all the lines. A deuce court player is a it makes the ad court player famous, and you know the people who really climb up the ladder generally have always played the ad court because when they were kids they were always the best player. Mm-hmm. And the the myth is the best player always plays the ad court yeah. because that's a game ending point. But Vic's like, hey, yeah, um, how do you get to being up in the uh, in the ad court? You got to win that that deuce court point. Did you play the deuce court a lot then, or? Come on, Steve. That was a joke, man. Did I play court a lot? I played with a lefty. I played like Arthur Ashe's brother, Jack Ashe.
1: Oh, yeah, good old Jack Ashe.
2: With uh, Vic. Um, He graduated from Monroe High School in 1947. I went to Kalamazoo College, 47 to 51. Did graduate studies at the University of Toledo. Um, Got a master's at UCLA. And Vic is ABD. All the dissertation, he completed all his work. But when he told the uh, academicians, the authorities, that he wanted to prove that you could help a kid more on the playground, more on the athletic field, yeah. he was turned down. So he, he, he really never looked back on academia. But
1: 57 years later, he got his honorary, honorary doctorate from K
2: College. And, um, you know, Toledo was right next to Monroe it was fun to talk to Scott who who's also from Monroe, Michigan. Mm-hmm. But Vic, um, um, actually, when we were talking to Liam Draxel, his, his father, Brian, mm-hmm. Liam had a great run at the NCA's. I was just so impressed that his father remembered this photo, but then I found out that his, his Liam's dad played at the University of Toledo. Mm-hmm. But Vic has a picture of the basketball players. He got all the basketball players play tennis, but they're up on a ladder, yeah. and they take a string from the baseline, he gotta be fourteen fourteen six to hit down on serve. Yeah. Um yeah, so he was the assistant basketball coach, taught PE classes, and he was the head tennis coach What he took he took the uh basketball players and you imagine Vic Brady doing this, put the racket in the pizzas position, yeah. toss tap, and run to right. the net. yeah, got him to go forward. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about uh <clears throat> next thing Vic did is he was a sixth grade teacher.
1: Yeah, Topanga um elementary school. In Southern California. Got that here in some of my notes that I wrote down. But 6th uh, grade for three years, I believe it was. And what was really cool was, uh, I think it was 2010, is he had a reunion where all those, it was about 100 students came back, I think, you know maybe 13 or so had already passed away. But they had a reunion and I was able to be there. It was, it was just really, really cool to see the stories, but just, you know... The lives that Vic had affected, um, as the people told their stories and got together, it was really great. And then I know it was a really special night for Vic, and it was really cool for me to be there and experience that as well.
2: So, no, the magic, the, the the number one Pied Piper. how those people just had such affection for him so many years later. I think
1: one story from I think I was talking about this earlier was uh, when he's an elementary school teacher and, and teaching sociology. Um, geography a little bit is they were reading about Haiti and and in the book they were saying oh how you know, Haiti everything is great and you know life was grand and, and he was talking to his friend that was in Haiti and he said is this true and he said no it's the opposite of that you know I couldn't believe that and so what he did is he had the sixth grade kids ask questions on an audio tape and then they sent that audio tape to Haiti to the kids so the, his friend in Haiti had the kids then answer the questions to the tape. And then they were able to hear it firsthand from the kids that, yeah, it's actually the opposite. And so that kind of got him going into more of that kind of research and all that kind of stuff. But it was a, a really important project that, that I remember him talking about a lot was uh, that
2: experience. I know when I, I could not be at the Memorial the tribute that for Vic, I know you were there. Yeah, that was a- and one of his students uh, spoke. You actually can listen to that on YouTube. And one of the students, there's a story, uh, was shared. Could only see out of one eye, out of one eye. And mm-hmm. he's, he's trying to play center field on the baseball team. And Vic has got the fungal bat, and he's hitting balls up. And yeah. and uh, people were making the teammates were making fun of him. So Vic got a patch and made every kid go out in the field and try to catch a ball with, yeah. with a patch over your it's eye. Classic. It's like see. When I think of Vic as a sixth grade teacher, what he did when he taught the tennis unit, he filmed and recorded this. And then 25 years later had a reunion and that's where the phrase traces of the old. Yeah. So then he interviews everyone and said, no, I haven't really, I haven't played tennis since the sixth grade. I haven't yeah. played since yeah. we went through that course. Yeah. That six week uh, P class. Yeah. Segment. and, that's how powerful the brain is. Yeah. I mean, once you're programmed to deprogram, I think of a Jim Lair line I use often. It takes a stick of dynamite.
0: Yeah.
1: I used to talk about people go off to war or wherever it was and they come back and it was still there.
2: It's like the, the cartoon, uh, Wile e. Coyote and Roadrunners. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, you put it, just think of having a <laughs> kid who's got to change the, the, the grip on his forehand from Bud Collins. It, it's not Western. It's, it's so far over as Hawaiian. Yeah, that have, um, that's like, you know, a
1: Richard Schmidt, UCLA was one of the, you know, motor learning specialists where he would talk about, yeah, you've got to enter that zone where you get a little bit uncomfortable. And once you can be comfortable being uncomfortable, which Vic used to always say,
2: then you're going to be able to make some changes. The tape that Vic made with him on motor programming It's one of my favorite. Yeah, it's great. Um, he was a district psychologist in uh, Southern California, Hermosa Beach. Um, and then after that, you know, for eight years, he always tells people my job was to walk around and apologize <laughs> to anyone Pancho Gonzalez insulted. <laughs> yeah, what, what a different uh, set of personalities, uh, Pancho Gonzalez and Vic Braden.
0: Welcome back from episode number 49. That short clip does not do Vic Braden justice. Please watch... All three podcasts we have on Vic Braden. I hope this podcast was a great review for the listeners on the Pillars of the Great Base. Hopefully, Steve can host the podcast once again soon. Have a great rest of your day. I've been Yvonne. Adios, amigos.